From the Jeff Nyquist Studios on California's North Coast, you're listening to the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show. Welcome to another edition of the Jeff Nyquist Program, and we're going to be talking about the changes in the economy. We've got a lot of volatility in the markets, and we've got the bursting of the housing bubble, and with me today is going to be Michael Pansner. He's written a book called Financial Armageddon. So uh, join us. Uh, We'll be right back after these messages. You're listening to the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show. Thanks for making WIBG 1020 a part of your life. We are Live Radio 1020, WIBG. Where more people every day hear the truth. From Hurley in the morning to the wondrous story with Dave Bailey, Jay Sekulow live in the American Center for Law and Justice, and Josh Henning afternoons. South Jersey's cutting edge Christian news talk and your station for women's oldies every weekend. WIBG 1020 and WIBG.com, plugging you into to life. You're listening to the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show. With me is my guest, Michael J. Pansner. He is a 25-year veteran of the global stock bond and currency markets who has worked in New York and London for HSBC, Soros Funds, ABN AMRO, Dresdner Bank, and J.P. Morgan Chase. He is also a New York Institute of Finance faculty member and a graduate of Columbia University. He is the author of The New Laws of the Stock Market Jungle, an insider's guide to successful investing in a changing world, and a regular contributor to prudentbear.com, financialsense.com, and safehaven.com. Pansner has appeared or been quoted by CNBC, Bloomberg, The Wall Street Journal, USA Today, Barron's, and other print, radio, and television outlets. Welcome to the show, Michael. Hi, glad to be here. You've written a very interesting book called Financial Armageddon, and what really struck me most about the book was your chapter on malaise, because you're calling what's been happening in the last few weeks dead on in this chapter. Well, I, I think so, and considering that I actually finished the manuscript in October, I suppose that's something uh, there's something to be said for that. But uh, you know, the, a lot of the stuff that's going on now was 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 predictable in some sense if you put it in the context of history and you put it in the context of uh, of the kinds of activities that have been going on. Um, not that it necessarily required a kind of a rocket scientist approach. But you could see these forces building up to the point uh, I think we're starting to see now. Prediction really fascinates me. That's the thing. When when people call something, then they're on to something. They've caught on to history and how the pattern works and how there are certain things that repeat themselves, certain patterns that go together. And, um, you know, even even to the point of saying that the dollar would increase at this period when the banks were in danger and there was a credit and finance cr- crunch. And we, here we just saw this. Just uh, just a week or more ago, and uh, of course, uh, from what I gather, what you're saying is it, the process has really begun. Or do you think we're going to be able to delay it? Do you think we've begun the process of malaise? That we're really in at the beginning of the the process that you say unfolds in your book towards depression? Oh, I think we're we're underway, um, and I think the. Uh the next phase of, you know, malaise was a, was a generalized state and, and uh, of, of, of sort of declining economic activity, of uh, problems becoming uncovered. Um, but I think we're well on our way really to the next phase, which is some sort of systemic crisis. And I think we're seeing the early indications of that now. Uh, it's always hard to predict uh, uh, precisely in terms mm-hmm. of timing. Um, 
what I think we're seeing now is sort of a, a slow but sure locking up of different markets. Um, we're seeing a, a complete turnabout in the uh, credit environment. And, and all of those things point to um, a pretty unhappy ending. I'm not an economic uh, expert, but it looks like the major banks are in trouble, aren't they? Well, it, again, there's a you have to kind of clarify that somewhat because some banks, just like some companies and some individuals, uh, always do manage to get through whatever the circumstances are. But I, I think there are going to be uh, problems uncovered that do a great deal of damage um, and will lead to failures. Um, they'll lead to failures on Wall Street, uh, will lead to failures in the banking system. Um, I uh, expect, um, I can't tell you which one, but I expect that one of the uh, well-known large banks um, will either go under or be at the point where it's uh, effectively out of business and uh, either has to get merged away or, or something has to be done. Uh, so I guess I agree with you um, that it will, it will have a severe fallout. Now let's uh, go back and talk about what's what's causing all this because you're taking a bird's eye view you're you're taking the big picture view uh and in your book you begin talking about debt maybe right. you could tell us about the kind of debt that that this country is involved in now and why it is so destructive well his, history is not kind to um to uh, countries and 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 really um uh, empires if you want to classify the US as as something along those lines um that have you know gotten to the point in their in their in the cycle where they've become increasingly dependent on borrowed money uh the reality is is that um you know the compounding of uh, effective interest works against you um and especially now as we've seen so much debt being used for non-productive purposes it's non uh, self-extinguishing so to speak if a business borrows money um to to uh, build up a, a an operation that will generate revenue ultimately it extinguishes the debt and that's that's viewed as a good thing but if people are using debt for consumption purposes or in the case of uh, the U.S., uh, you could argue that uh, some substantial proportion of the money that they've been spending is going on efforts like uh, the wars going on overseas, um, then there may not necessarily be, and in, in fact, there's unlikely to be any real payback. So at the end of it, you're just stuck with this giant obligation that keeps growing with, uh, with the compounding of interest. And I think that's at the heart of, uh, of the, the problem we have now. It, historically, um, it, when debt has gotten to the sorts of extremes we've seen now, and this is going back centuries, um, it's, it's inevitably been the, the downfall of, of the, the country, or uh, whether you take it on a micro level or a macro level, but it's in, inevitably been a warning sign of the beginning of the end. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I, uh, there was an Italian historian a hundred years ago, Guglielmo Ferraro, and he, in his history of Rome, the one economic insight he drew was that you get a, a number of generations, each one living better than the one before, and you finally end up with a situation where you've got a, a, a generation that lives better than their parents by living in debt. And he said that that was the generation that things broke down, that, that the Roman Empire would go into civil war or people would have to cannibalize in order to, to survive the, the debt crisis. I, th I think you hit the nail exactly on the head. And, uh, and uh, in fact... Um, history has certainly been a been a relevant um, guide for me. There are a lot of similarities to what's going on in the U.S. aside from financial issue, issues, but you know, from political point of view, from a social point of view, uh, that mirror, say, some of the developments that took place in in, Ro in the latter days of the Roman Empire. Um, so I certainly agree with that with that premise. 
Now, in your uh, your chapter after debt, you talk about the retirement system. And for those that are approaching retirement age, what you write is very frightening. Well, it is because it's, you know, people tend to look at, say, one aspect, um, whether they're talking about Social Security or they're talking about the private pensions or they're talking about the, um, the, the sort of welfare or the well-being of, the, of their finances at the state and local government level. But it really is not as strong individually as it is uh, if you put it all together. I mean, we essentially have a retirement um, safety net um, that is broken. Um, and whatever level you want to look at it, uh, more and more of the risk down the road for people who are going to get, you know, you know, to the point of being past their working lives is going to be shouldered by them. And I think a lot of people are going to be surprised by that. Um, it, and it doesn't just include, obviously, the, 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 the sort of income supplements that people might get, you know, a pension, but really we're talking about health care. Uh, we're talking about um, other aspects that people have come to depend on or at least come to expect um, when, they, when they get older. And, and in, in my view, a lot of those promises are going to be, remain unfulfilled, and, and it's going to create a, a fairly devastating impact. So we're talking about uh, people's retirement from from government or corporations or their own private 401k programs. All of these things are basically not necessarily going to hold up in a in a financial crisis. Um, I believe so, and and much of it is is built on promises. I mean, uh, the classic example, and, and and a number of officials have pointed it out. Uh, uh, Mr. Walker, who's Comptroller General of the U.S., has actually been on the uh, doing the rounds about that, and he's, he's one of the few uh, individuals out there who's actually speaking the truth. But you have a lot of uh, promises which, if brought to uh, today's value, you know, present value basis, um, are, are staggering in terms of the amount of money. You know, you're talking $60, $70 trillion in, in forward obligations that haven't been accounted for, are not budgeted for, are not being addressed now. Um, but will be there and are, are likely to get even worse the longer they're not addressed. And I mean, and, and these obligations aren't just at the federal level. I mean, state and local government is another accident waiting to happen. I mean, you have um, some provisions in the law that were changed uh, recently, um, accounting treatment of uh, retirement obligations and related retirement obligations such as health care, which have, have always been sort of swept under the rug. Um, but those add up to a straggling total as well. I mean, uh, you know, one estimate is uh, is north of a, of a trillion dollars for, for all state and local governments combined. Um, and that's money that hasn't been accounted for. Um, that's money that will have to come from somewhere. And uh, so you have this combination of people having more and more of the risk thrust upon them for their own retirement needs. And at the same time, you have this buildup of obligations that uh, are essentially they're going to be called upon or, or somebody's going to have to pay the piper for those. You know, I note this phenomenon as I'm hearing you talk about government and, and its obligations. I, I, since now I was born in 1958, and I have seen in my whole life government giving more and offering more and doing more, and, and there's less and less asked from the citizen unless it's paying more taxes, and even that the government doesn't really want to want to ask people to pay more. And, and I just can't believe the number of people who are, who, are, who are collecting money for various reasons, whether it's grants or that they are allegedly mentally ill or whatever, that when you look into it, these people really, it's just, it's like money's being given to them out of nothing. And the way that the government mismanages money and continually needs to spend more and more, more vast sums, 
I mean, I think under George Washington, the federal government had three departments, and now what do we got, 15 or 16 federal departments of government? Sure. And so it, 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 at some point, you got to hit the wall with this kind of expenditure in, in all levels of government where everybody thinks they've got to be taken care of. And that leads me to the, the final taking care of. We, we've become so, I guess you could say, weak and um, unable to bear any hardship that we've attempted, have we not, to get rid of the business cycle. Yeah, well, I think people have been lulled into a false sense of security. I think you have this combination of developments. I think you alluded to it earlier, the sense of entitlement that comes with each generation. They assume they, they, they must get as good or better than their, their parents did. Um, you have this um, easy um, acceptability of, of postponing um, pain to the future. Um, people, especially in an environment where, it is, where it's gone on before, I mean, it becomes kind of self-fulfilling. The more people are not used to taking pain, the more they want to postpone pain. And one easy, one seemingly easy way to do that is with uh, with debt. Um, you know, I think it's a fundamental flaw of all um, democratic systems. And by the way, I, I think that's still the best method. You know, the best best approach. But you know, they do cater to constituencies, and the people who are actually drawing from the public well, um, that group tends to to grow larger over time, and as a result, they tend to have a greater and greater influence over policy, um, and, uh, you know, it, it, in a sense, it becomes a, a sort of a, a train wreck that will eventually uh, come to an end. Um, so you have this various combination of factors, and, and I think we've reached a point in the cycle where, you know, the jig is up. Yeah, it seems to me that hard times, uh, economic recessions were good because they cleaned out all the moonbeam farms, all the businesses that didn't really work, that shouldn't have been there, that were a drag on the economy. And and now it seems that by extending credit and by the the way we handle our economy, that the incompetent businessman and the business that shouldn't be there can, can sort of muddle on and muddle through and continue to sap the economy of its strength. And uh, you have an interesting quote from your section on government guarantees. You said, uh, making matters more precarious is that a long overdue economic slowdown or turn in the credit cycle will almost certainly decimate the financial position of America's biggest banks. The risks stem from outsized exposure to property lending and real estate related activities, financing and trading with highly leveraged hedge funds and providing credit facilities to shaky companies that will exercise the unwelcome right to borrow money when they cannot get it from anywhere else. That's a, that, that just describes where we're at right now with the bursting of the real estate bubble. I agree. I mean, it's, uh, it seems a sort of a kind of a roadmap really to, uh, to what's going on. I mean, the issue is that the, there, there's again, there's several factors. I think there's a general complacent mindset that's been in existence. There's been this, um, some would argue, a moral hazard. A lot of government policies have uh, essentially uh, encouraged all sorts of bad behavior. Um, we've also had a situation, and, and this has kind of been a historical phenomenon that I think economists like Minsky have, have highlighted, is that the longer and longer you go on with a period of, uh, of stability, the more and more risky behavior people take on, and ultimately the more and more destabilizing is the end result. Um, and I think that's what we've seen is because of these attempts to manipulate away the business cycle to to uh, assuage, uh, to meet needs that really couldn't be satisfied from current resources. Um, it's postponed the day of reckoning, but ensured that when the day of reckoning comes, it will be far worse than it would have been if 
events had been allowed to take their natural course. Yeah, and you just touched on the notion of economic optimism, which is something that I noticed years ago. This uh, this cult of economic optimism that you have to speak uh, w- within sort of. Uh, a limited view of of what can be. You can't really talk down the economy. You're a bad person if you do. And then we've got this groupthink that goes along with it. And you mentioned groupthink in your book. Maybe you can talk a little bit about the crazy making psychology of what's what's gone on really with the, with the market since the early '90s. Well, let me I mean let me just give a bit of a background. If you look at the history of the world or the history of the U.S., I mean on balance. It's 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 a pattern of of progress. I mean, it's a zig and zag pattern of progress over hundreds of years. So it's hard to argue that the case that you can be pessimistic long term. So let me just you know qualify it with that. I think at the end of the day, uh, even you know after the Great Depression or after the Civil War or after you know the the, the two great world wars things manage to sort of shake themselves off and get back on their feet and move forward. And, and, and don't get me wrong, my, although my prediction is quite dire, um, I believe that ultimately, you know, um, things will, will move forward once again. It'll be like a birth and death phenomenon. Um, we'll be reborn. Um, so, so bearing that in mind, uh, the thing that you have to, to take account is that, for example, let's look at the issue of debt. When you borrow a lot of money, by definition, you're confident, and by definition, you have to remain confident and hope the system remains intact. So people, in a sense, have a vested interest that clouds their judgment. Uh, and then when you're talking about uh, Wall Street or, or Washington, um, people in, in general, and I'm not saying they necessarily do it consciously, but in general have a vested interest in things, uh, in making people believe that the future will be good, because otherwise people won't buy the stuff that they're selling, um, whether it's stocks and bonds or, or other kinds of services. Um, so in essence, um, there is a there is a underlying uh, motivational factor, whether it's you know in, intentional or not, for people to be optimistic even in the face of um, uh, of you know hard evidence to the contrary. Um, aside from that, you have certainly have people who are um, uh, using this information uh, intentionally, um, essentially stuffing the bag holders is, is one slang of way of putting it, um, convincing the masses that everything's okay so that you can actually take advantage of the situation and lighten up. Uh, not that I can make an argument one way or the other, but you know, from what I understand from reading the press reports, um, the head of um, Countrywide Financial which appears to be having a number of problems right now, largest mortgage lender in the country, uh, has realized hundreds of millions of dollars in stock sales over a period of time. Now, I'm not going to sit here and say that he's done something uh, illegal, because as far as I can tell, he probably hasn't. But um, he certainly um, used the optimism that has been sort of uh, promoted by himself and others to take advantage of that personally. And, um, you know, under those circumstances, it's easy to see why people can promote a positive message even when, even when the facts say otherwise. Hmm. A vested interest that clouds their judgment. And then, of course, there's those that want to use this to their advantage. Yes. With me is Michael J. Pansner. He's a 25-year veteran of the global stock bond and currency markets, and we'll be back with our guest after these messages. You're listening to the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show with your host, Jeff Nyquist. 
plugging you into life. We are Live Radio 1020 WIBG. Whether it's Hurley in the morning, Henning in the afternoon, Dr. Jim Dobson in Focus on the Family. South Jersey's fastest growing Christian news talk. Now with more than a million listeners and hits at WIBG 1020. WIBG. 1020 WIBG. Or at WIBG.com. Plugging you into life. You're listening to the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show. With me is my guest, Michael J. Panzner, a 25-year veteran of the global stock bond and currency markets. We're talking about the U.S. economy and about his book, which is uh, Financial Armageddon, Protecting Your Future from Four Impending Catastrophes. And uh, I, I was going to quote something from your book, which really, uh, as a political sociologist, uh, interests me. Feeling trapped and desperate, you write, countless ordinary Americans will be racked with feelings of bitterness, resentment, guilt, and frustration. And you talk about a, sort of a desire for revenge once things get real bad in this country economically. Maybe you could uh, tell us a little bit about what you see uh, being the social fallout of all this. One of the things I did when I wrote my book was that I was decided that people make the, this common mistake of separating out. And, you know, you see a lot of investment books on the shelves that uh, focus on, on money and focus on purely the financial side. But I felt that the the, the social side, the non-financial side, um, really gets short shrift. But that is the part that, that affects people. That is the part that people live with day in and day out. You know, it's one thing, for example, talking about the Great Depression and talking about, um, you know, the numbers of unemployed and the, and, the, and the extent to which growth fell and the extent to which the world suffered. But when you actually got down to it, there was a lot of people who were hungry. There was a lot of people sleeping on the, uh, in, in the sort of Hoovervilles, the shanty towns that sprung up in, in public areas. There was a lot of people um, really, really suffering on a day-to-day basis, people doing things for survival reasons that, uh, perhaps under different circumstances they wouldn't do. And and I think that was, in my mind, the, the critical element to understand the, and, and, and really to, to, to make it more of a powerful impact, to understand that this is, if this money thing happens, as I believe it will, it's going to affect their lives. It's not going to be something that takes place, you know, off in Wall Street or off in some faraway country. or It's going to have a, a dramatic um, effect across the nation, reaching all the way down into community after community. Um, and, and, and I think that's the thing to bear in mind. And, and, and we do see instances where people, when they are faced with, with uh, extraordinary difficult times, um, do resort at times to uh, uh, primal um, behavior. Uh, I think one good uh, example, and I don't, I don't mean good in the sense that it was, it was, it was, you know, ideal. I just meant it, it, it elaborates what I'm talking about. Is what happened in the wake of uh, Hurricane Katrina. I um, mean, you essentially had a, a lawless uh, environment. You had people who were um, operating in gangs in some cases. You had people who were really acting in ways they might not act uh, when circumstances were, were more ordinary, even days before. Uh, and I think that is the kind of thing you have to bear in mind when you get to an economic situation that will really have a devastating impact across all levels of society. Uh, some people, some good and ordinary people, are going to do things um, that others may not like uh, or are going to do things that are really to their own benefit as a matter of survival. And, and it's a really an issue that I think people have to be aware of. 
Now, um, let's go over some of the things that you talk about in your book. Economic malaise where people don't know where to invest their money and they become very worried and they, they kind of retrench. They don't want to spend money. They want to wait and see. You got a period of time. Then uh, this leads to um, you know business uh, closures and banks in trouble and credit and financial crunch that we're seeing now, which then, of course, leads businesses to go under and, and, and millions to be laid off and retail outlets shutting their doors. Uh, which would eventually lead to, as you show, the uh, hyperinflation would probably be something that would happen later on. Right. And which would devastate, it would sort of level everybody, it would destroy the savings that people had put away, it would destroy all investments. Really what you describe is a series of very devastating uh, earthquakes, economic earthquakes, which would kind of level the landscape and leave people with, without the feeling of security or the feeling of, of wealth or even the wealth that they have. People would, in essence, go to bed imagining that they have retirements and their house is worth uh, six, $700,000 and that they have a job and then wake up the next morning to find that their house is worth a fraction of what they paid for it and they don't have a job and they don't have a retirement anymore. Um, this, this is um, an extremely... Uh, distressing situation for people to to be in. Well, I, I agree, and and look, you know, um, some have argued that it's fear mongering on my part. I mean, I, I make a case that I believe, based on history and based on the, a confluence of, of circumstances, you know, in the book I lay out four four areas that I feel are, are closely related. You've you, you've mentioned one of them already, debt. Um, but the point is, is that a lot of people don't appreciate is a lot of the way that the the US and this country has developed in recent years has essentially been uh, on a, on the basis of what you might argue is a house of cards i mean you've got values for houses values for the economy values for um financial markets um and all of those affect people's behavior they affect uh, the health of businesses they affect um the smooth running of the economy well a lot of that value has been predicated on air. I mean, it's been built on debt that is essentially uh, not going to be paid back. Um, and people talk about, you know, how can house prices, for example, go down that far? Well, um, they have gone down that far. And in an environment where debt is becoming liquidated because people can't pay it, um, well, if most houses are, um, are, are essentially leveraged, a few people these days um, buy houses with 100% cash, um, the portion that has really been financed by debt, um, all those people can't pay, pay their debts. Essentially, it drives down the, the general level of uh, asset values, and, th and that is a common consequence of a, uh, of a of a bursting of the credit bubble. And I think um, history has shown us time and time again that the, the forces that you see when you find that uh, credit is being liquidated on a large scale, like for example, we saw in the uh, in the in the 30s. Um, is that it puts pressure, uh, downward pressure on the prices of everything, puts downward pressure on values um, that people have taken for granted, um, and it really changes the entire economic landscape. And, and I think that's the thing you need to bear in mind, is that it can change in a heartbeat. Maybe not wake up under the circumstances you described, but there are going to be individuals who wake up one day, and more and more of those individuals who actually uh, experience the sensation that you talked about. Now, uh, the, the big question is, a lot of people believe that government can save us. And you have a chapter in your book called Government Guarantees. Why can't government save us? 
Well, I mean, in a sense, they've saved us, but they've killed us so far. I mean, I guess you could make that argument that because there were natural market forces that no one has yet figured out a way to, to truly defy the business cycle. I think we see in nature, the seasons, um, the night and day. I mean, there is a rhythm in all kinds of, uh, of living creatures, sort of a birth, death, cleansing kind of process. And I think once you start playing around with that, you you all you do is just create more more damage uh, when when the sort of natural forces reappear. Um, but the other issue to bear in mind is position the government is in right now is is essentially the cupboard is bare. I mean, when it comes to the way that uh, government finances are being run now, um, uh, we require something on the order of three billion dollars a day plus from overseas investors to keep the economy running. Um, that really finances our poor spending habits as a nation. Um, we we depend uh, heavily on on debt. We depend heavily on people accepting, for example, the U.S. dollar as the world's reserve currency. Um, the the whole game is going to change at some point when people realize that the U.S. is no longer the superpower that they uh, that they think it is. And 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 another reason why I think the timing of my book is more relevant now than might have ever been is that I feel like we're we're seeing it right now the the US's role on the world stage is diminishing um I think we're seeing the last days of the American empire and and uh, I think that that together with all of the problems that we have suggests that this government will not only have a difficult time saving us it'll have a difficult time saving itself now that's an interesting point um perhaps the most frightening thing that you wrote in your book about the the social consequences is this particular paragraph you wrote bigotry and an almost rabid hatred of other races cultures and religions will increasingly permeate all levels of society anti-semitic anti-muslim and anti-christian sentiments are likely to grow in equal measure Foreigners in general and immigrants in particular will prove to be easy targets. In fact, America's long dependence on manufactured goods and money borrowed from abroad will spur considerable resentment toward outsiders, reinforcing a broad sense of xenophobic paranoia and efforts to close the nation's borders both figuratively and literally. Yeah, I mean, I, it's it's a natural phenomenon. We're already seeing signs of that now. Uh, it's kind of ironic. Um, this country was was really built on immigration, and now we seem to be swinging the, the the whole other way. I mean, we've come to the point now where people are are arguing that uh, it's foreigners taking their jobs. In many cases, uh, by the way, that's true. Um, I don't want to take away from the fact that there are uh, some serious issues. You know, we have policies, for example, that encourage companies to outsource a lot of jobs to around the world um, without any kind of uh, offset, really, from the point of view of uh, you know society's needs. Um, but the, the the truth is is that people look for scapegoats, and the easy scapegoats are always going to be people on the outside. Um, and 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 I think you know a classic example of dependencies is that uh, many times when people are uh, become dependent on something or other, um, they come to resent the uh, the person or individual or organization that uh, has essentially uh, been sort of maintaining their standard all these times. So uh, the child turns on the parent, so to speak. And I think in this particular instance. Um, as a nation, we've become very dependent on, for example, the Chinese and become very dependent on uh, Japan and, and very dependent on other nations, the Mideast. And I think, in a sense, that dependency will, 
will turn around and have people uh, thinking that those people are somehow to blame for our woes. And uh, I think we're seeing signs of it now. Um, mm-hmm. I understand and agree with the premise that a nation has to protect its borders. But I also am of the belief that what we see now in terms of the uh, this, this uh, idea to just kind of isolate the U.S. and build big walls and, and keep out people who, uh, who who have been coming here, even as visitors, just represents to me the early stages of, 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 a, of a complete kind of xenophobic uh, movement. Well, of course, and this has geopolitical ramifications. If people uh, become more racist and religiously fanatical or xenophobic here at home, and they want to put up walls around the border, and you mentioned this in a chapter on your book on the geopolitical ramifications, we're talking trade barriers, we're talking greater tensions between countries, we're talking about countries arming each other, we're talking about uh, uh, trading blocks of countries that are kind of uh, hostile toward each other. Right. Uh, we're talking about the kind of environment that led to World War II, are we not? Well, yes, but I think there's other factors involved. I, mean, I think at the same time, what's coinciding with this with this evolutionary process is the the fact that we do have constrained resources. I mean, you have issues with in terms of uh, water, you have issues in terms of air, pollution, energy. You have a lot of natural resources where I believe that there are elements of greater competition occurring now than before. And 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 some would argue during World War II. Um, you know, energy concerns were a factor that really um, uh, promulgated, a, you know, to a certain extent, um, this this conflict that took place. Um, so I think this combination of people essentially splintering off, um, and the you know really in the that is promoted to a certain extent by the absence or the diminished authority of the U.S. on the global stage. You have this combination of people splintering off, but you also have this uh, other effect of resources being constrained and much more um, essentially competition and in some cases survival um, by various nations making sure that they have what they need for their people. Yeah. After World War II, President Truman, under the doctrine of containment, sort of organized the world, organized countries. We gave, we established special economic relationships with countries in every continent. We uh, established defensive barriers against the Soviet Union and then communist China. And uh, out of that came a, a global system in which the United States played a, a central, pivotal, important role economically and in terms of security. And now what you're saying in terms of this economic crisis, and of course we've, we've already seen what's happened with the fall of the Soviet Union, and, and now even when Russia goes to put its strategic bombers in the air, the State Department just says, oh, the, the Russians don't realize we're living in a new era. And it's not a big, important thing. But, but what you're saying is, and what your book is saying, is that, that this, this kind of can wipe out the existing order, the post-World War II order, could go away entirely. And what we would see is a completely new international order based on completely different arrangements. Yes, uh, exactly. You've hit the nail on the head. In fact, uh, I've already... You know, in the sort of formative stages on my next book, because I think it's going to be a completely different world in, on, in global terms. Um, you know, some have argued that you, for example, that you might have uh, China, uh, for example, as the, as the new rising superpower. But I wonder. Um, I wonder if it's going to be a much more um, dark and chaotic world than strictly having a you know a transition like we had from Britain to the U.S. and in theory from the U.S. say to China or something. 
Um, I wonder if we're going to see a much more chaotic world because of some of these um, influences, because of, for, for example, resource uh, constrainment. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm not an optimist. Um, I mean, you know, the world will go on and people will survive, but in terms of the, the sort of era of the peaceful sort of era, and, you know, that's qualified, obviously, but the, the sort of era of globalization, I, can, I guess, um, I think that's coming to an end, and I think that will have uh, negative consequences. Well, you mentioned in your book uh, Russia, China, Venezuela, and Iran drawing together. And, of course, we know that uh, Russia, Venezuela, and Iran are energy-rich. They team up with China, the combined military power of China and Russia, and the, the, the new dark world you talk about. Uh, we even had the Russian president, I believe it was in February, gave a speech in Munich which shocked a lot of the Western observers. He pointed out that... Uh, the BRIC alliance, Brazil, Russia, India, and China, had greater economic potential than Europe. And uh, he pointed out that a lot of these rising nations, given their energy position and given their alliance with countries like China, have a greater potential power position than the United States and Europe put together. And for him to even bring that up, it almost seemed to be boasting, almost seemed to be arrogant about it. As, so much so that Brent Scowcroft, the uh, former national security advisor to the elder Bush, uh, president uh, said that the speech was obnoxious. That was the word he used to describe Putin's speech. And and so it isn't just simply that the United States, the evil imperialist monster, bows and disappears from the stage. It is that these Asiatic despotisms, these countries, hungry for the kind of prestige and position the United States has had, are eager, actually, to fill the vacuum, and that the vacuum itself will be more likely a chaos than just simply them ably filling it. Well, I would say clearly the U.S. has been something of a benevolent empire, although some might challenge that view. But in the context of, say, the way the Soviet Union functioned when it was one, you know, one collective group of, uh, of states, so to speak, um, I think one, perhaps one model um, of evolution we might see is, is what happened in the Soviet Union once the sort of central authority broke down all of a sudden it's it's kind of every man for himself and then you get all kinds of power plays going on and i think on the global level you could see something similar and you know i think you could see um nations like russia for example uh really starting to to throw their weight around um and say well we don't have to worry about the us anymore and i'm the new kid in town and uh that has implications for the rest of the world has implications for Americans, uh, whether they like it or not. Yeah, especially in an era of mass destruction weapons, when a country like Russia has thought that the United States was restraining its uh, ambitions, its desire to dominate Europe, for example, in the Middle East. Uh, if the U.S. didn't exist, those areas would be basically under Russian dominance. And um, does the Chinese see the same thing in the in the uh, Far East, in the Pacific? And uh, if the United States were seen to be collapsing, if its central authority did give way, it would not be the kind of benign process that took place when the Soviet Empire collapsed. It wasn't like the Americans moved in a in a disrupting fashion into to take over, destroy, or pillage its enemy when its enemy collapsed. But I, I'm not sure I would have the same confidence with the Chinese and the Russians uh, if the United States suffered a, a kind of collapse. 
Well, I, I think your concerns are warranted, frankly. I mean, I, you know, I have some thoughts on it, but I, I certainly think you could make a real, uh, real dark case or a real uh, worst case scenario that is not not pretty for in terms of the the sort of uh, world going forward. Uh, mm. I mean, I don't know if that's exactly the way it's going to turn out, but I certainly th- see the uh, the risks are there for a uh, a really chaotic, a really dangerous. And and a, and a a fairly unstable geopolitical scheme of things going forward. With me is Michael J. Pansner. He is a 25-year veteran of the global stock, bond, and currency markets. And uh, this is the Jeff Nyquist program. We'll be back with our guest after these messages. You're listening to the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show. WIBG Proactive Local News. When you have to know. You have to know. You've come to the station that gives you local and regional news all the time. 1020 WIBG Proactive Local News. All around Atlantic City, as you look at our landscape, you see signs of investment in Atlantic City. South Jersey, Philadelphia area's only Christian station with proactive local news. It's local and regional news when you need it. 1020 WIBG Proactive Local News. Some of our beaches in the northern end have been eaten away. Right now, Rick. South Jersey. Philadelphia area's only Christian station with proactive local news. 1020 WIBG. We've got you covered. Covered. And now once again, here's your host of the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show. I'm Jeff Nyquist. The Jeff Nyquist Program with me is my guest, Michael J. Pansner. And we've been talking about the U.S. economy, uh, the problems that it has. Uh, Michael has a book titled Financial Armageddon, Protecting Your Future from Four Impending Catastrophes. And of course, we've we've talked about malaise and we've talked about depression a bit, and of course, systemic crisis. You've touched on that. Um, let's let's talk a little bit more about systemic crisis, which is the period that uh, we seem to be entering into. Given what you said in your book, uh, how long do you envision this process? I know that there was a the, it took like what three four years for the stock market to really totally collapse away in after 1929. Sure. Uh, how long of a downturn are we talking about? If we're at the beginning of it now, do you see this going very rapidly or slowly? Well. To be honest with you, I think that's slightly less predictable because I think, like most aspects of history, things have speeded up. Um, you know, a lot of the way things function nowadays in terms of trends of innovation, for example, are, are far, far quicker than they used to be. Um, so it does cloud the picture somewhat. But the way I looked at it when I first put the book together was at a time horizon, something on the order of uh, three to seven years for the whole thing to play out. Um, mm-hmm. Um, really taking us, say, into, um, you know, sort of 2011 to 2013 is the kind of uh, end of it all. Um, as to the particular phases, it's a little bit trickier because it does depend upon official response. It, it is a bit of a like a game theory issue in the sense that how others react to our woes will influence our behavior and will influence the ultimate outcome. Um, frankly, it's a complex analysis. But in in my mind, I can see it playing out over a time frame that is on the order, like I said, of three to seven years. And of course, now, if it's beginning now, we've got a very weakened presidency. Uh, President Bush has been discredited by his policies. Uh, he is not popular. I think he's got some of the lowest approval ratings I've ever seen in my lifetime. I think they're lower than Richard Nixon's was at the height of Watergate. Do you have much confidence in the leadership in Washington uh, navigating this? Do you see any hope uh, for, in a correct uh, policy responses to this uh, problem, the problems that are emerging now? Um, in a word, no. 
but mind you, I, I think there are elements of the system that are broken. So this is not a political call. I mean, I do actually feel that the, the current administration is something out there in some other world. Um, but unfortunately, I think there are structural issues uh, and the way that um, American government has evolved that it probably would be irrelevant which party was in power. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I think it's a structural democratic issue. In other words, democracy rather than uh, Republican or Democrat. So I, I, I don't want to sit here and say I blame the Republicans, um, although I think the Republicans are doing their best to make things worse. But I, I think it's equally likely that the Democrats will have their hands full if, in fact, they end up, you know, in the, in the White House in 2008. And if this process unfolds, will we even have an election in 2008? Look, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, and right. although I do accept that uh, things probably go on that I know nothing about. But, you know, if you really want to take the, the sort of Machiavellian uh, worst-case historical perspective, um, I have heard all sorts of talk that evolves from some of the actions of this current administration to limit civil rights and to suspend habeas corpus and to have, you know, domestic spying. I have heard, you know, some suggest that, you know, the pathway leads, you know, leads to one place, and that's the, the sort of dictatorial rule. I don't know if that's going to happen. I wouldn't rule it out um, in my book. I suggest that martial law is a possibility at some point in the U.S., but I view it as a, as a response to economic conditions, however, it, it may just be a, an evolutionary process that's kind of unfolding now, and it will be coincident to economic conditions. I don't know. Yeah, I, I of course, wasn't talking about any conspiracy by any group in the government to, uh, to get rid of uh, elections, but if the government can't finance things, if we can't maintain the military, keep the military system going, uh, if the government's authority has bled completely away, Millions are unemployed. People in the cities are rioting. We're not the same country we were in the 1930s. We can't all go home to Grandma and Grandpa's farm and, and, and live out there. Uh, we've got fewer options. I mean, people who live in condos and apartments, they can't even grow a garden. There are fewer options. I mean, in, in a way, it's, a, it's a kind of interesting because one of the factors that played a strong role in the Great Depression was the collapse in farm prices and a good swath of the nation was involved in farming so at least they could be self-sufficient in terms of food. Uh, now you're, you're correct, we're not as vulnerable in the sense to agricultural prices falling but we have less ability, I suppose is a way to phrase it, um, to adequately feed the population um, and yeah, that's, that's a genuine concern and I think it could create um, tremendous conflict in certain areas. I mean, one of the uh, points that I note in the book is that I believe cities, for example, will be uh, much more dangerous and difficult places to live in than than even they are now um, because of the, the the density of the population and and the fact that um, resources won't you know be readily available and, and basic necessities will be harder to come by. Let's talk about that. You have a chapter on lifestyle at the end of your book. You, you mentioned in there the possibility that actually energy prices could fall right. and things becoming scarcer. Is that because so many people will be too poor to buy gasoline or too poor to be mobile that there won't be the same demand for gas, which will cause the prices to fall? Well, I have to say the one area where I felt the most difficult sense, and I admit this freely, of making a solid prediction about the price trend, so to speak, was energy. Because in a deflationary environment, which I am uh, expecting, 
um, it, it puts price pressure really on all assets and all commodities, generally without exception. I mean, it's a it's a it's a normal accompaniment to uh, liquidation pressures, debt being extinguished, etc. Mm-hmm. And it's also a, a normal accompaniment to slower growth. I mean, people have less money to spend, and uh, there's less people employed. It means they spend less money, they drive less. Factories run for shorter periods, so there's a, generally speaking less of a demand for energy. Um, but I think my my premise in the book and my uh, premise going forward is the idea that um, energy prices will suffer somewhat because of those pressures, but not necessarily to the same degree that other commodities might. Um, mm-hmm. Longer term, you know, once the the sort of depression phase is over. Um, you know, the final phase that I forecast in the book was a, was a hyperinflation phase. Um, things like energy and all sorts of hard commodities will rally strongly. It's really as havens against the collapsing dollar and, and exploding uh, inflation. But on balance, there is a relationship between energy prices and the economy. And in my view, the world economy is going to suffer a dramatic blow. And on that basis, the, the short run is for lower rather than higher energy prices with the caveat being that there's probably more upside in the longer run. So we're going to see people going to only one car in a family. There's going to be more people living in the house, maybe relatives coming to move over in the house. Maybe right. not everybody will be employed, so a couple of the people will be be forced to support the others while the others try to, to do things out of the home. We will see people in these tent cities that you mentioned before having to move to places where there would be work available. Um, and, of course, a lot, you mentioned the book, depends on the government's reaction or the specific state or region that they happen to be living in. You know, uh, look, it's not going to be a mirror of 29, uh, I'm sorry, of the Depression and, you know, the post-29 period, but there are going to be parallels. I mean, uh, frankly, one of the things I mentioned in the book about the, these Hoovervilles, these shanty towns that kind of sprung up in uh, in public areas back in the, in the 30s, well, I actually think you could see maybe condovilles, um, where uh, all of this building has gone on in places like Florida or places like Arizona, California, speculative building. And when it's all burst, you have all these empty houses and essentially you have people squatting in them as a kind of a survival, you know, uh, mechanism. I could mm-hmm. actually see that scenario uh, unfolding. You know, there won't be exact parallels, but uh, you will have big migrations, um, and I think some of it may also be driven by the point you raised earlier. Uh, people may move closer to where they can get food and, and other kinds of supplies or, or easy access. Um, so there'll be a great deal of migration and a, and a great deal of uh, adjustment, social adjustment. Uh, I think people will be downsizing in, in, in many respects. And there's a there's almost a silver lining in this cloud. I mean, from reading what you you wrote, it it seems like uh, people might have more time to think and meditate and spend with their families. Uh, maybe marriages will be more solid and families will be closer. You know, there are some who make the argument, and I and I buy the argument that there's a kind of a spiritual emptiness to the way the world has developed. And, uh, and I'm I'm not sitting here, you know, proselytizing any particular religion. I I mean spiritual in a fairly generic, broad sense. Some argue that there's you know there's a, there's a hole in in some people's souls, and they've tried to fill it with you know consumer goods and vacations and big houses, and moved away from really perhaps the way that people used to feel the, those needs with each other and with their minds and with the sort of the simpler things in life. So I do think there is a point there and that people will look more inward and see things in a, in a richer sense ultimately.
Yeah, that's that's very interesting. You know, I had a psychologist on the show last spring, and she mentioned the statistic, and it 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 really amazed me. She said that of the generation born around 1900, they had less than two percent suffer major depression in in life, and now this figure today is up to 25 percent, which means that our wealth has not made us happier. You know, I buy the argument. You know, look, I don't want to sit here and say um, having money is a bad thing. I mean. Having money gets you certain things. The question is, once you get past a certain point of survival, what does it really get you? Mm -hmm. And and for every person, that's going to be different. And and I don't want to sit here saying that we should all go live in communes and then we'll be happy because I don't think that's reality. But I do think that you can't literally buy happiness, and many people have tried. Yes, and we are. We are trying to buy happiness. In what's happening now, uh, we had just in the last week, we had um, some reaction with the stock market falling and and uh, then reversing itself, and then we had uh, a lowering, what, 0.5% lowering of the discount rate? Right. Maybe you could just explain, Do you th- what do you think that's going to do to what's going on? Well, to a certain extent, it's symbolic. I believe it's a reflection of panic at the, at the Federal Reserve. Um, the way things were played out, um, uh, in practical terms, they, they shot their bullets very early in the game, um, and I think it's going to backfire on them ultimately. Uh, you know, we're still, we still have a situation now where government's thinking they can kind of control things, control the business cycle, control whatever bad news might roll along. And I think that kind of thinking is still there. Um, but if you have, as I believe we do now, the, 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 the beginnings of a significant and far-reaching unraveling of the various bubbles, including the credit bubble, which is kind of the mother of them all, then this is really just not accepting reality. Um, this process has to play out. And I think it's ultimately just makes things worse. Hmm. There's never going to be an environment where governments do let what should happen happen. In other words, like banks, for example, lent money to people that shouldn't have, so those banks should suffer for it. Well, in Washington, people don't like to see consequences from when people have bad behavior, and that's what we call moral hazard. Um, and I think you know the Fed is is part of this general moral hazard. Uh, issue that has arguably made America a worse place than it should be. So if, uh, for those listeners out there that have money, that they are wondering what they should do with it, uh, I mean, what should a person do if they have twenty, thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000 and they're thinking, oh no, my bank might collapse or there might be hyperinflation or, or the stock market might collapse or I can't put it in real estate because real estate's still too high. What is your advice to people right now? You know, I say in the book as well, you can't give customized advice. Every person's situation is different. But however, uh, in general terms, the, the the most important thing is really to rethink lifestyle, to scale down debt, to have money in cash, and, and preferably in a, in a safe institution. And beware, I mean, there was this, the report this week from out your way, I mean, countrywide financial, the, the mortgage lender has a bank, and there was a picture, I think it was the LA Times, depositors lining up to move their funds because FDIC um, only covers up to 100000 per account. I mean, it's a little bit more elaborate than that. But basically, those with money over the uh, FDIC ceilings um, were realizing that they should transfer their money out because if the bank has problems, they may not get all their money back. Whether or not you know the countrywide bank is going to go under or not, I don't know. But it would be prudent to bear in mind that if you have your money in a bank account and you have more than 100000 there and it's not split up 
in such a way that each account, like if you can have a joint account, a single account, et cetera, is under the ceiling, then potentially that money is at risk. Um, it's something to bear in mind. I mean, I, I believe in cash. I believe in um, treasury bills, even though I think uh, ultimately the government is doomed. And that sounds pretty dramatic. Um, that's a long way off. And uh, treasury bills are still going to be the safest place to hide in, in, in the short run, in short-term treasury bonds. Um, but, you know, the, 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 the truth of it is is that in a, in a generalized deflation, a generalized credit unraveling, very few asset prices go up. Uh, most go down. So really, the only genuinely safe place is, is cash. Well, any final thoughts? Well, I, look, I mean, there's two final thoughts here is that my first book wasn't bearish, so I'm not a perma bear. This is not like some sort of shilling routine where I, uh, I have a you know a whole industry built around me. Um, this is a result of careful thought. Um, the other thing to bear in mind is that I don't want people to get hurt. I didn't write this book because I think people deserve it or anything along those lines. I wrote it because I think people need to know the truth. Um, mm -hmm. Maybe I'll be wrong, and that would be a great thing, but they need to be aware that if I'm not wrong, uh, they better do something about it now. Well, Michael J. Pansner, thank you for being on the show. It's a great book, and I recommend it to everybody because it, it really does make it clear for me as a layman, economic layman, what the problems are and that there are serious problems and that we ought to expect some kind of trouble from them. And so I, I want to thank you for being on the program, and I hope you'll join us again in the future on another program. Well, thanks very much. I appreciate the opportunity. Take care. You're listening to the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show with your host, Jeff Nyquist. Plugging you into life. We are Live Radio 1020 WIBG. Whether it's Hurley in the morning, Henning in the afternoon, Dr. Jim Dobson in Focus on the Family. South Jersey's fastest growing Christian news talk. Now with more than a million listeners and hits at WIBG 1020. WIBG. 1020 WIBG. Or at WIBG.com. Plugging you into life. Now, once again, here's your host of the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show. One of the most interesting quotes in the Bible that we can reflect on right now is the one where Christ says, man does not live by bread alone. And that is certainly true. We do need bread, but bread is not the only thing we need. And uh, maybe we've put too much of our emphasis in life and in our society in making the bread, making money. And now maybe that hyperinflated value now comes home to roost and we have this giant crash confronting us, a giant collapse of our false values at a moment when we have to suddenly find true values. Perhaps looking back at what our grandfathers and forefathers believed in will be pointing the way to where we have to go now. I am Jeff Nyquist. I hope that you'll join us next week for the Jeff Nyquist program. Until then, be well. You've been listening to the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show. We invite you to join us again next week at the same time. Please visit Jeff's website at jrnyquist.com. Again, that's jrnyquist.com.